I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's James Jacobs, and we dive into the life and music of Johann Sebastian Bach. He's considered one of the greatest and most influential composers in classical music. So we explore how his music changed as he moved from job to job, how a teenager is responsible for his popularity today, and even how Bach wound up in jail for nearly a month. James, do you know how much I love Johann Sebastian Bach? I love him so much that I listen to his music every day. Not just that, I listen to the same recording often twice a day. Take a listen. Well, I hate to break it to you, John, but that piece actually is not by Bach, but it was included by Bach in his notebook for Anna Magdalena, his second wife, as a sort of method to teach his wife and children how to play keyboard. But in a way, pieces that Bach touched are almost as important as the pieces that Bach actually wrote because he was this great sort of compiler of musical ideas in his time. And that minuet in G is one of those great musical ideas. And if it helps get you up in the morning, more power to you. In fact, that's not my alarm clock. That's actually my um, water boiler in my kitchen. When it reaches the desired temperature for whatever it's set, it gives that little performance. It's very good. It's like the bubbles are dancing, right? The little courtly, courtly dance of the bubbles. It's very nice. So maybe it's not by Bach himself, but I wonder what he would think of his music being played like this or, you know, on your dryer or your washer, as we do find it. Well, I think part of what we have to think about whenever we talk about music of the past, and especially music of the distant past, like Bach, is just how little ambient noise there was compared to today. And and so that the way music filled that space was actually much more significant. It, it, it created, in a way, much more, it was almost had a utilitarian purpose, sort of like what you have now. It, it was a soundtrack of their lives, and people paid more attention to it. It was like they're hungry for that kind of thing. So when you listen to this music, you have to imagine it's sort of like you're eating something after, you, when you're really hungry and not just out of habit. You know, this music was significant. It played such a major role in the lives of everyone around. And uh, that was certainly recognized in early 18th century Germany, where music was uh, one of the, a very definite growth industry. It was, uh, it was everywhere. Absolutely. And before we get into more, before we dive into it, James, can you explain to us what BWV numbers are? We'll be mentioning them several times because they aren't opus numbers, but they can kind of help us in a similar way. Right, exactly. Now, that minuet you talked about actually does have a BWV number, even though it's not Bach, because in the late 19th century, some German scholars compiled what they called the Bach work catalog, which in German is, for the German words of that, it's BWV for the initials. And it's basically just a matter of organizing Bach's works in a numerical way. They're not chronological like opus numbers, so you can't get any idea of, of when they wrote that. For So, for example, the two first 250 or so BWU numbers are all choral works. The first 200 are the church cantatas they wrote 
But there's the choral works, and then we get into the organ works, and then we get into instrumental works for other groups of instruments, and all the way up into the thousands. He was very, very, he was fertile in many, many ways. Let's just put it that way. Right. So Bach was truly one of the most influential composers to have lived. He wrote some of the greatest masterpieces in classical music, but in his lifetime, he was primarily known as this virtuoso organist. There weren't these big publishing companies or public performances everywhere. That wasn't common. He was writing, like many, music for for royalty or for Bach, in his case, a lot of music for the church. It's music that was played in these church settings. So after his death in 1750, his compositions were only really known by serious music connoisseurs or composers studying his music. And it was it would be decades until Johann Sebastian got his due in the public. I guess it was Felix Mendelssohn. He's like a teenager um, in the 1800s studying Bach. And then he gave, he conducted a performance of the St. Matthew Passion by Bach in 1829. He's only 20 years old, right? And then it becomes, the music of Bach just takes off. Yeah, this is a fascinating story because uh, Mendelssohn's, I believe it was his aunt, she was a student of Carl Philip Emanuel Bach's, and she had money. So she devised ways of trying to accumulate manuscripts of Johann Sebastian Bach, and and she got the manuscript score to the St. Matthew Passion, and she bequeathed it to a 15-year-old Felix Mendelssohn. Even if he hadn't written all the great music that he wrote, even if he hadn't basically invented the orchestra and the conductor, uh, he would still be known for what he did for Bach when he was only 20 years old, and that is conduct his own edition of St. Matthew Passion. And um, the, the fact that that's the work that prompted the Bach revival is extraordinary and really tells just what it is about Bach's music that is so universal, that does create this love and obsession that makes even tuba players who can't even play his music in the original way, you know, you know, use his music every day to figure out when the water boils, you know. Oh, yeah. And the sad thing is we actually don't know that much about Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, that is, compared to composers like Mozart and Beethoven. We don't have stacks of hundreds of letters and correspondence, day-by-day travel records. In fact, J.S. Bach didn't travel very much at all in comparison. So we know he was born in March on the 31st in 1685. And for some context, this is the same year as Handel. Uh, Telemann, born a few years earlier in 1681. Vivaldi, born in 1678. And he came from a family of musicians. And unfortunately, he was orphaned at uh, 10 years old. He lives with a brother. He goes to school a, a little bit away. And then he gets into a series of jobs that take him from place to place kind of close by because he just did not travel much at all, did he? It's kind of like being in the space of a place like um, Maryland for his whole life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is kind of like being being in Maryland his whole life. And he, even by the standards of the time when it was harder to get around, he was pretty provincial. Uh, he was uh, he really kept close to home. I think he made like one trip to Dresden and like maybe two to Berlin, and that's about it. He didn't go to Paris. He didn't go to Vienna. He didn't go to London like you know a lot of his contemporaries did. But somehow he was definitely 
very, very well read, which is probably a testament to the fact that, you know, his family had an extensive library and, uh, and he knew where to get music. But he was also up on current trends, too. So he, even though he didn't travel much, he made the effort and must have been a deliberate effort to keep up to date with latest uh, musical trends. That's true. And I've, from what I've read in part, it's because of this boarding school he went to that introduced him to a lot of different cultures and, and music in, in Europe. And so he's gone to school, and now it's time for him to venture out into the world. And we can kind of track how his music changes, what he composes and how he writes from job to job. Not unlike I think a lot of us today and what we do kind of varies by, well, the new city we live in or, or something like that. So in 1703, between 1703 and 1708, he goes to a couple of different cities and different jobs. He's in Weimar, Arnstadt, and Mulhausen. He's 18 to 23 years old. And this is, I mean, he's brand new. He's not the Bach we know today. He has some light duties with the church. He's playing the organ in services. He's rehearsing musicians. He's also teaching. And I understand he's also doing some menial, non-musical duties as well around the place. Musicians were servants, and that lasted a long time. And even like 80 years later, Haydn was still doing things like decanting wine. You know, even at the even at the height of his powers, even at the height of his fame, he was still doing things like presenting food when the regular servant was around. So, yeah, that's that, you know, that's what they had to do. So Bach is this virtuoso organist and he's writing and this is some of the music that you would have heard from Bach in this time. That's the opening to his prelude and fugue in C, BWV 531. And that's the kind of music, you know, the, the church doors are open, people are walking in, and you'd, you'd hear Bach playing this kind of music. And of course, people are talking and maybe not paying quite so close attention. Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the stipulations later on at the end of his life when he or when he got the job of Leipzig, there was a stipulation in his contract that he not do any theatrical music. And yet, and he didn't. He didn't write operas like his contemporaries did. But Bach was such a theatrical composer, such a dramatic composer in so many ways. And he did that in the way he played the organ. He knew, for example, in that piece that we just heard, like, that's the music you want to hear at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning as you walk into a church. He knew how to do that just with his own two hands and two feet. He knew how to create this atmosphere just with the organ. And that's really where he... He, I think, got his skills that he later applied when he got to work for, you know, when he had actual orchestras and choirs to work with. At the beginning, it was a one-man show all about him and the organ. It's a one-man show. And what you said is a very important point. He did not write any opera. I mean, you're looking at Handel and Vivaldi, who wrote a lot of opera. But looking at Bach's music, there's a level of... Um, dramaticism that is the envy of these other composers. And I just want to interrupt and say that we also sort of hear a sort of theater of the mind in his music. And he did that in his passions as well. It's like they're all sort of radio plays in a way, even the organ music. It's, it's music that is this direct communication between composer and the listener, which is why I feel that Bach is one of those composers I feel perfectly that 
works really, really well on recordings because it almost feels like the ideal way to appreciate his music. I think you're right about that. And let's listen to another work here from this early period. This is from one of his first cantatas, Christ Lays in the Bonds of Death. And as we listen to to more examples, something you said I think is going to become more true and more true, and that is it's theater of the mind. Bach's one of those composers that doesn't just grab your attention, he arrests your attention, and it kind of just punches straight through to your soul sometimes. I think that it's, it's not so hyperbolic. I mean, that's my experience when I listen to his music. It just stops you in your tracks sometimes, and his choral music is beautiful. So in this time, 1703 to 1708, he he gets married, starts having um, children. And he's also, while he's living this kind of humble life as this church organist, he's also getting into antics like many composers and many musicians. There's a story of him fighting a bassoonist in a town square in Arnstadt. Apparently he wrote a bassoon line that was too hard, and the bassoonist thought he was trying to put him out or make him look foolish and... Apparently, Bach had this little tiny sword, and there was a fist fight. In the end, it was broken up. But Bach is also, he's getting into it just like composers that would follow. And he's gone through Weimar, Arnstadt, Mühlhausen, these cities. He returns, actually, to Weimar from 1708 to 1717. These are his, you know, coming into adulthood years. He's 23 to uh, 32 years old. He's organist, director of music, doing maybe a little less of the menial jobs. And there's something Bach was a genius at, and we're going to have a quick lesson on it now, and that is counterpoint. This is a very interesting thing, and I think we can kind of explain it simply from like a thousand-foot view. So counterpoint, it's both like the simplest and most complicated thing in classical music. Counterpoint resolves the question, how do I make two independent lines or melodies sounding at the same time sound good? Because you can have two beautiful melodies but you put them together and they clash. So counterpoint resolves this issue with a set of hierarchy of uh, rules or principles. And this started before Bach, like in the Renaissance in the 1500s. The most basic level of counterpoint is what we can call first species. So for example, on the piano, we have one simple melody in the right hand, And you'll have to excuse my out-of-tune piano. But you have that in the right hand, and then you can have something else in the left hand. And so that's in the left hand. And you can put them together following the rules and the principles. That's how you come up with these notes. And when you put them together, you get this. Now, on a technical level, this is like 2 plus 2 equals 4. And Bach, he takes this to, he's like in another dimension solving string theory. I mean, he's solving the problems of the universe, not using two independent lines, but three, four, five, and even six. And as we heard there in that first species, the rhythms are the same. Each note changes with each other. But as we hear, Bach is doing all kinds of things. For instance, this little two-part invention... 
quite a leap from that little simple thing I was able to play. Well, absolutely. So, I mean, we can think of it in terms of we've all sung rounds, right? Like row, row, row your boat. So that is a very crude uh, example of counterpoint, but it's definitely counterpoint. But I'm also thinking about on a deeper level, there's this great line from Amadeus where Mozart talks about his finales in the operas where all the characters are saying different things at the same time and expressing their their own ideas and their own thoughts and fears. And he says, it's like how God listens to humanity. It's uh, as this tapestry of all these voices going on at the same time. And even when he writes for a solo instrument, uh, like later on we'll hear the cello suites, he always has the musician have a conversation with itself and answering itself, questions and answers and back and forth dialogue. And to Bach, that's what it was about. I mean, other composers, I mean, Bach wrote great melodies. He wrote, you know, like, you know, composers have different kinds of, of strengths. Um, and you can hear that, you know, like Schubert and Tchaikovsky and were about, about melodies and Mozart was perhaps about harmony. And Bach was about this sort of combination of a rhythmic impetus and this contrapuntal technique, this idea of constant dialogue or trialogue or quadrilogue or <laughs> whatever you have, this constant idea that music never really stops. It's like a river or it's like, for example, a brook, which, by the way, in German is Bach. Oh, okay. I love how you're describing it there because when I listen to his music, it's to me, well, it is so scientific and, and mathematic in that kind of beautiful nature revealing itself way. And it's very architectural, too. There's some of, as a tuba player, there's a lot of music of Bach that we play, some of the partitas, especially music for flute. And you'll look at a page of music, and it's just, it looks so simple and easy, really, just a string of 16th notes, the same rhythm from beginning to end, no rest. But architecturally, it goes together in the most beautiful way. If you take a note away, the whole thing falls apart. What I do in the first measure will affect what I do at the very, very end. Everything is kind of interrelated. And that's what I love about Bach. There's so many notes, but every note is in its place. Yeah, it's like uh, fractals in a way, if you want to. Fractals, I like it's, that. It's it's very much, it's, it has this sort of mathematical perfections, like these sort of self-sustaining, you know, ecosystems of notes um, that, that he creates, really like no one else. And, you know, when you think of some of Bach's most famous works, you know, like the Prelude and Fugue with a Well-Tempered Clavier is just 16th notes. That's all it is. And yet we can't get enough of it. can be so extremely complicated and then a moment later give you something like this where it's just so broken down, so pure and so beautiful. The slightest change, uh, going back to what you're saying, it's the theater of the mind. It kind of takes you to a whole new level with just each change in the harmony. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it hypnotizes you. It's a way of 
of you have to win with this repetition and then you go along and so therefore you can just change one note in the pattern and it's like the universe changes like the landscape changes you see different colors and that's how he brings you along on this journey even through just a string of 16th notes that last three minutes ask any artist being simple is the hardest thing to do yeah, having economy of means is the hardest thing to do. You know, trying to pare everything away and just the essential bit. And Bach had that gift like no other artist in any medium I can think of. That's true. It's it's just deeply, deeply revealing. And in this time, in his 20s, he's writing a lot of music for the keyboard and also some orchestral works. So we heard a little bit of a two-part invention. There's many of them. That one, the BWV 779, a little bit of the well-tempered clavier. We can go to another cantata now. Before, we heard BWV 4. This one is BWV 61. It's called Now Come Savior of the Heathens. And there's this incredible moment it's called Behold, I Stand at the Door and Knock. And this is, again, it's just theater of the mind. You were mentioning, James, peeling back the layers, breaking it down to more simple and more simple. I mean, Bach has taken us to a point any more simple in, there, in its silence. Yeah, the silence is such a an essential element of this. And when you think of listening to what we just heard in a church and and just, you know, and, and it wasn't a small church. Uh, you know, the churches he worked in were actually fairly large. And so having to get your attention with these kinds of sounds and with plucked strings and illustrating the text in such a graphic way, but yet so compelling musically as well. Well, first of all, I mean, that could be in an opera. I mean, that could easily be, I mean, that's, let's put it this way. It could be in an opera, but almost you don't need the opera because you don't need to see somebody knocking at a door. That that just listening to it tells you what you need to know in terms of what's the what the action is that is going on. And the fact that you're not only knocking at any old door, but something that's very mysterious and has secrets of the universe lurking behind it. I can only imagine sitting in one of these big churches, like these cathedral-type places, and it's that pizzicato just filling the room and reverberating off of the walls. Really, it's knocking, it's knocking on the door of your soul here. And in his earlier time period, we talked about him getting into a fight with a bassoonist. Um, he ends his time in Weimar by going to jail. Yeah, it was... In Weimar, for example, that he wrote the hunting cantata, which has the very famous piece, Sheep May Safely Graze, which, by the way, is not a Christmas piece. It was a piece written for his boss's birthday, the Duke of Weimar's birthday, talking about how all the sheep felt safe because they were under the protection of the noble duke. And this is the kind of stuff that his boss demanded of him, was this kind of very pandering uh, sort of way of writing for it. It was all about exalting his boss to almost the level of a god or, or, or something. And 
Bach wrote some great works at Weimar, but you could tell that he uh, didn't have much of an appetite for this sort of environment. And and then when he got offered a job at Curtin, where he actually had um, an orchestra to work with and much more creative freedom, uh, he would want to take it. So Bach was uh, actually detained for you know in jail, in real jail for an entire month, because Weimar did not want to. You know, that was a punishment for how dare you. And he almost lost his job in Curtin because he, you know, he showed up late and, you know, and he couldn't really communicate and he couldn't really, you know, why, why really? I was in jail. Well, that's not a good look. <laughs> not a good <laughs> look sh- at all. If you show up for first day of, of work a month after you're supposed to start and, you know, imagine that. Yeah. He would have been 32 years old. And so far we've heard some of his early music, those keyboard and orchestral works as well in his 20s. He's 32, and that's when he gets out of jail, and he goes to Curtin. He's there from 32 to 38, and he's a little bit higher up, I understand. He's also the Kapellmeister for this Prince Leopold of Curtin. And this is where we see another shift in his music. Now he's writing a lot for not so much the church, but a lot of instrumental works. Probably the happiest six years of his life, I would say. I mean, yeah, I mean, this was when he really got to, he wasn't under the strictures of, you know, not that he, I don't think he minded writing for the church because that's where he, you know, sort of created his craft. But the idea that he had this freedom to write for a variety of instruments and and to write for a boss who actually appreciated music and was himself a musician playing the viola da gamba and really got what... Bach was doing and really appreciated it and collaborated with him. Uh, this was unprecedented. And Bach took full advantage of this by writing in those six years, six years worth of the greatest instrumental music ever written. So, yeah. yeah I'm, I mean, really, that's not too much of an exaggeration because, well, again, the prince is into the instrumental works. He wants that. The church is leaning way less on music. In this case, there is not much music. So he's writing these works, and we can listen to, well, there's several we're going to listen to, starting with these Brandenburg concertos. These are magnificent works. They're like concerto grossos, right, concerti grossi. And these really expose a level of Bach that I think not everyone is super familiar with. And that is Bach can be quite metal in his in his writing. Oh, absolutely. Well, let's talk about Concerto Grosso, for example, because that just will make you appreciate just how radical these works were for the time. Concerto Grosso was something that was not really developed by composers like Corelli and Vivaldi that were basically for strings. In a way, they were kind of the descendants of something you're familiar with, which is those triple brass works by Gabrielli, those kind of triple choral works. In this case, what they did was contrast a small choir of, say, two violins, a cello and a theorbo with a larger choir of, say, 12 strings and a harpsichord. And it was the contrast between these small and large groups before you could get a lot of dynamic contrast with just one instrument. This is how they created sort of variety and a tonal variety. And that was basically the birth of modern orchestral music was this idea of the small and large string choir. And that's what Bach had to go on. And he took this idea and sort of like, oh, well, let's involve some wind instruments in this. Oh, let's let's do different combinations of this. And And again, he just made this up. So when we hear something like the second Brandenburg Concerto with this quartet of of high instruments, all high instruments, and all the variety of texture they get even within that. And it's just, 
I mean, maybe he thought of it because of all the stops that he fooled around on on the organ. I'm not sure, but but that probably had something to do with it. That Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Two. It's still today one of the most. It's one of the most stressful things for a trumpet player to perform. I, I mean, I would get extremely nervous just sitting in the audience and watching it. And looking at his Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Five, which has this uh, beautiful opening. We have these lines passing around from harpsichord, flute, and violin, all the things you just described. And then we get to something that we hear, we'll hear more as we as we go on with box music. And that is just an extraordinary solo for the keyboard here on the harpsichord. Just listen to a moment of the harpsichord condensa and the opening movement of his fifth Brandenburg concerto. And today, you're going to find all kinds of discussions of Bach on metal forums online. That brings us to really one of his most recognizable works. It also works great on tuba, by the way, and those are his his cello suites. What's so interesting about these are that these weren't really popular until really into the 20th century, right? They were maybe seen as too difficult or just weren't known widely enough. Is that right? Yeah. They, people didn't really know what to make of them. It was really not until the late uh, 19th century that a young man named Pablo Gasols was going through a music shop in Barcelona and found an edition of the cello suites. And he decided to play them. You know, there wasn't really – he didn't really have a role model for doing this. In fact, he was self – Pablo Casals was kind of self-taught in many aspects of cello technique and cello playing. And he just decided to make these pieces his own. And he started playing them in concerts and they became very popular. And then in the 30s, he made a series of recordings in London and Paris where he recorded all six of the cello suites – and that was a revolution in so many ways. It was uh, it was a revolution in what people thought about Bach and what people thought about the cello, and also in what I was talking about before about how Bach's music is a direct communication between him and us, and his his fingers, his his mind, and our ears. And so, in a way, the ideal way of experiencing these cello suites was through the advent of recording. So he kind of uh, transformed what recorded music could be like recorded music could not like a recording could not just be a document of a life performance but also a work of art in itself and the cello suites number one in particular with the prelude i think is a good one to demonstrate something you mentioned earlier and that was box writing music at times for a soloist and the soloist is having this conversation with themselves, and they're also accompanying themselves. Because with these, with this prelude, you often hear, well, you're going to hear this lower note that acts as many times the root of the chord, and you'll hear cellists stretch it out just a little bit, and it kind of reverberates and fills the space and sets the foundation for the next notes that follow above it. Well, the G string is... It's not the lowest string in the cello, but it's the one that's the most resonant because it's the most in uh, in terms of how the cello is built. And so as a result, 
it creates the illusions of notes that aren't actually played. So even though in the prelude, there's only one note played at a time, except for the very, very last chord, you feel like you're hearing all sorts of instruments. You feel like you're hearing counter melodies. You feel like you're hearing other instruments, the higher instruments, lower instruments. And it's all because of the overtones generated by the G string. Okay. It's extraordinary. I love it. Like you said before, these, this time period in his 30s is when he's writing all these amazing instrumental works, those cello suites, another one that really kind of grabs your ears, this chromatic fantasy, the BWV 903, and that it's just, again, it's kind of metal. It's like fractals. It's like looking into a kaleidoscope. And one of my favorite, favorite works of Bach, kind of a desert island set of music, if you will, are his partitas, and especially the partita number three in E for the violin, BWV 1006. This one demonstrates so many things that I think about with Bach in terms of the the architecture and all the notes in the right place. Let's take a listen here to the opening of this partita, and you can hear a glimpse of another style of playing, I think. I've spent my share of time in the mountains, and I've heard on more than one occasion someone on the fiddle outside of a store playing something that sounds a little bit like the end of that, right? There's a little bit of this bluegrass sound. Oh, absolutely. Now, in these suites, it's a set of dances, right? And the prelude is not a dance, but it's supposed to represent the instrumentist warming up before he gets to playing the dance set. And so this is the time where he's kind of where we get a sort of idealized version, again, it's sort of cinematic, of, of how he would practice his scales and arpeggios, but in a way that's showing off. And, um, and, and so it's really, it's this virtuosic music, it's virtuosic, it shows off the virtuosity of the performer, it shows off the virtuosity of the composer, um, it shows off the possibilities that you might not even have dreamed of for the instrument playing these things. And this partita is absolutely spectacular. It's interesting because he later made an arrangement of this piece as an orchestral piece with trumpets and drums as the symphonia to his 20th cantata. But I think that was one of the few times, it's not the only time, when I think Bach made a bit of a misstep because, I mean, he recognized in this piece that it could be an orchestral piece, but it actually sounds fuller just the one violin by itself. It's like, you know, filling in the blanks didn't help. I think maybe he thought he did and he sort of transcribed for organ, but uh, it didn't, it doesn't need all that. It's, it, it generates all that just by itself with the one instrument. And another movement from the violin partitas that he famously does this is in the Chaconne to the second partita. We could do a whole podcast just about that piece. It's, a, it's an incredible piece. And, he's, and it's thought that he did that piece as a memorial to his first wife, who died while he was writing it. That's right. She she died in, in 1720. Maria Barbara. And he would then remarry to Anna Magdalena, right? Yes. And between both marriages, they would have 20 children, 10 surviving into, into adulthood. And again, this is just an amazing time in Bach's life where he's 
He's focusing on these instrumental works. And it's now 1723, and he goes to his next job in a new city. And we'll talk about that right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. So it's 1723, Bach is 38 years old, and he moves to what would be his final city, his final job, and that is Leipzig. He's there up until his death at the age of 65. And this, now he is at one of the most enviable positions, right, in in all of Germany. He's the Thomas Cantor of the St. Thomas Church, and he's also Kapellmeister at large. He's in charge of music at several churches in Leipzig. He's very, very busy, and he's back at it now, writing music for the church, especially cantatas. Yeah, and uh, he has a lot to prove. He feels like he has a lot to prove. He knows it's a big job. He wasn't their first or even second choice. They wanted Telemann. He said no. Then they wanted Graupner. It was only by chance that Graupner happened to sort of get this other job at the same time, leaving the way for Bach. And and so that created a kind of friction right from the get-go. Bach only took this job because his the circumstances at Curtin had changed. And so nobody was 100% happy to be there or 100% happy with this arrangement. But Bach also knew that there was a lot at stake and that he had a lot to prove and that this was indeed a big job where he had to do all the music, you know, for two churches. He had to teach at this school. Uh, He had to write music for celebrations of the Leipzig Town Council. You know, he was basically the one-man music director for a town. And, you know, and his, his biggest job was writing, you know, was going back to something that he had done in his very first job <laughs> in, in Milhausen and Weimar, uh, which was, was writing cantatas. And, and in fact, one of the first pieces he performed at Leipzig was Cantata Four that he had written 20 years earlier or something. And, and he revamped that, you know, hoping that that, you know, and he did that with several of his early cantatas. And then he had to write, write many, many, many more from scratch. Yeah. I mean, this is, he's literally getting called up into the big league and he's writing cantatas, I mean, we think of Mozart being so prolific. Bach is here writing, he's having to write a new cantata basically every single week for a while and also have that cantata or a cantata performed. So he's also rehearsing. The parts have to be written out. That takes a long time to sit down and by hand, it was a team of people or someone would copy for him, but there's so much involved and he's in charge of it. And on the big high holidays, there may be several cantatas being played over the weekend at all of these different churches. And he's doing this, by the way, while he's living in what I think most of us would consider just unacceptable. He's living next door, literally sharing a wall, I think, with the 50 boarding school boys. And he's got how many kids of his own living there? I mean, he's, I don't know how he found time or peace and quiet to write. And I assume that was just not something. Or father he, those kids. Oh yeah, I mean, he's, <laughs> I don't know how he did that either. <laughs> Bach is doing things that again we just don't know. And he writes though these cantatas; they're absolutely beautiful. I mean, you you go to one, you're not gonna you're not gonna find one you don't like. But he also starts writing a couple of passions, right? The Saint Matthew Passion, which was where we were in the beginning with how he became famous again with Felix Mendelssohn. In the opening of St. Matthew Passion, he presents 
a few different worlds. Now, one of the things that he does, we talked earlier about about the Brandenburg Concertos and having the concertino, these two opposing groups against one another, and that's how you create contrast. In um, St. Matthew Passion, he, he applies that to choral music, and so you have two distinct orchestras, each with his own chorus, and they answer one another, and they ask questions of one another. You know, it starts with a question of, of who, where is this? Where is our Savior? What, what is going on? There's something going on. And, and then the answer comes in the form of yet a third element, which is a children's choir up in the organ loft, literally above the fray with this chorale tune that everyone would have known. And it creates this tapestry of, of humanity. And to make that palpable in music is an unprecedented achievement. There's another moment from this St. Matthew Passion I want to share because it's so beautiful and it demonstrates how Bach is also still doing the things that you're mentioning from the Brandenburg concertos and all this interplay between soloists, not just the singer, but with violin and others. This is a section, Erbarmadich, where I believe uh, Peter has denied um, knowing Christ, and there's this incredible moment between singer and also violin. And I can see why in our What is a Concert Master Do episode, Narit Bar-Joseph of the NSO, she was saying this is one of her favorite things to play, just this solo. It's just, again, it's theater of the mind. It's breathtaking. It arrests your attention. And his Mass in B minor is another one of those huge works that he wrote that, I mean, a lot of the things we just said, they also apply. I know for me, especially the opening to the Mass is just... It's enrapturing. You, you, you just can't look away. And there's all of that beautiful interplay between the instruments. Bach is doing, I mean, some of his biggest, grandest, most ambitious works, I guess, of his life in Leipzig in his 40s, 50s, and going into his early 60s. There is another work that he leaves us with called A Musical Offering. And it's kind of like this to me, this big scientific mathematical kind of gift that he's giving us, right? With yeah. I mean, it's counterpoint in its final form. Well, you know, it's it represents a sort of really kind of painful and almost embarrassing episode in Bach's life. And what is extraordinary is that he, from this episode, he he triumphs. He gets the last laugh. So what happens is his son is working for. Frederick the Great in Berlin. This, this is hostile territory. This is not friendly territory. Bach is seen as kind of old-fashioned. Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, he's on his own way. They're creating this new sort of Rococo style of, of composition that's more decorative. And so they set up the situation where he goes in and Frederick the Great immediately gives him this very complicated, very chromatic melody. Now improvise a fugue on it. And, of course, Bach, despite his age and despite his fatigue 
and you know, and it's kind of a trap that he's being set up with. And, and you know, when his son is right there, box it down, and he does it, and he creates this great three-part fugue, a reacher car, that he calls it, is sort of you know on this melody, and then Frederick the Great says, "Great, now do a six-part fugue," and Bach who probably could have done it, says, you know what, I, I need a little bit of time, but I'll, I'll, I won't give you what you want. And he, and he ends up doing this incredible, elaborate, basically a sort of treatise on counterpoint with this incredibly complicated tune, the royal theme that Frederick the Great has given him. And so he not only gives him these two very complex fugues, one in three voices and one in six voices, Think about that. I mean, think about just how complicated a two-part invention is. And then th- imagine a six-part round. I mean, this is really incredible. And it goes on for 10 minutes. It's it's just – it's insane how, how complex this is. I mean, something you need a computer to do and even a computer can do it. And it's something you're supposed to play at a keyboard. Yeah. It's something you're supposed to play with 10 fingers, six different voices with 10 fingers. So he was showing, yeah, I've done it. I did what you asked and I exceeded it and I'm a man of my time even now. You know, I still got it. I, you know, and so it's, it wraps up his career in such a beautiful and satisfying way. It's just beautiful how he takes the melody. It's like a seed. And from the seed grows this musical creation, like this far reaching willow tree. And a really good thing we can use to kind of hear these different voices in these six part things of counterpoint is a nice little arrangement for small orchestra so we can hear each instrument is playing its own part and you can really hear the difference between one, two, three, four, and five and so on. And just thinking about one person trying to play all these lines at once, it's just it's beautiful and like you're saying with this, it's just tying the the ribbon on top of this long career of Bach stretching from this humble organist doing menial duties, fighting a bassoonist in a town square, going to jail, finally getting his time to write instrumental works, to finishing it with these incredible, larger-than-life sacred works like the St. Matthew Passion, these cantatas, the Mass, and then this final treatise on counterpoint. What's so incredible, James, is that we know Bach today— as one of the most influential, one of the greatest, greatest masterpieces. And he did not write for the symphony orchestra that we know it today. He didn't write huge grand operas like Mozart or Rossini. But he is that one composer we turn to. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. I think another thing that we can talk about a little bit is just the journey that Bach has made since his death. The journey that Bach has made you know, that Mendelssohn perhaps started in a way, I mean, when I think of that second Brandenburg Concerto and how it's on the Voyager record, how it's the first piece that that was compiled um, with the help of Carl Sagan, I think back in 1977, and which is just now, I think just, I think just last year, it went into interstellar space. So now Bach, you know, it's the first thing on the record is the opening of Brandenburg number two. And that's the piece that the that the aliens will hear if they can figure out all the pictorial, you know, directions, which I doubt, by the way. Uh, they'll probably maybe they'll think it's some sort of food. I don't know. But anyway, uh, they'll, if they can figure out how it works, how the record works, 
That's what's so funny about it. It's an actual record. It's an actual <laughs> that you put an actual stylus on. There's instructions. They'll get it. It is amazing that this music of Bach is now escaping the influence of the sun. It is, it's out there, and what it is, it's a statement of this is some of the music we find most valuable here. Well, thank you so much, James, for sharing your insights and experience on Bach. I think we've all learned something, and this is just the perfect time in Bach's birthday month, March of 1685, to dive even deeper into his music. Yes, thank you so much, John. I could talk about Bach all day, and I think I already have. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or ideas for episodes, send them to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. Thank you.